I'm Tim O'Shea. I'm the principal of the University of Edinburgh. Uh, you're most warmly welcome to the third of our Enlightenment lecture series sponsored by Scottish Power. Um, today's lecture follows very successful talks given by Irene Kahn, Secretary General of Amnesty International, and by the renowned Nobel Prize winning economist Joseph Stiglitz. I'm delighted today that we have the opportunity to hear from the leading historian of Scotland on the important topic of the Enlightenment. I'm equally delighted that the lecture will be followed by a discussion featuring a range of eminent panellists chaired by the respected BBC News correspondent, Anne Little. A few words of introduction on our speaker. Professor Tom Devine is the preeminent authority on the history of modern Scotland and we were tremendously pleased when he joined the university to take up the Sir William Fraser chair. Tom is a graduate of Strathclyde and he began his academic career at that university rising to deputy principal in 1992. He then uh, worked in Aberdeen where he was the Gluckman Prof Professor of Irish and Scottish Studies and Director of the AHRC Centre for Irish and Scottish Studies and that's the first centre in that of advanced research in that area and I'm very pleased that Tom remains an Associate Director of the centre. He's written very many books as well as numerous articles on various aspects of Celtic history including rural society, transatlantic trade, famine, uh, and, and Scottish Highlands, and of course the Scottish Enlightenment. He is best known for his book, The Scottish Nation, which became an international bestseller and introduced a great many people to Scottish history. His contributions to Scottish history have been outstanding, and he was entirely deserving of the OBE awarded to him in 2005. Four years prior, Tom was awarded the Royal Gold Medal of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, the highest academic accolade in Scotland. He, is, he has a tireless and infectious enthusiasm for his subject, and he's an inspiration to all of us to explore our past and heritage. He's also tremendous fun to have as a colleague. At the University of Edinburgh, uh, we're very proud to count him as one of our colleagues, and it is a tremendous pleasure to ask him to address you now. Well, th thank you very much, Principal, for those uh, extraordinarily generous introductory remarks. And good afternoon, everyone. Um, I I've got a, about half an hour to tell you or to resolve something called a puzzle from the past. And it's actually focused on what Tim said, the Scottish Enlightenment. The actual term Scottish Enlightenment is actually of relatively recent vintage. It was only as late as 1900 just over a century ago, that the term was coined by William Robert Scott. And it's really only in the last two or three decades that historians and others, not simply in this country, but abroad and especially in North America, have become intrigued by this. The subject, in a sense, remained nascent and latent and almost undisturbed until the interest of recent times. I would now say that the Scottish Enlightenment has got the same kind of resonance in the lexicon of our culture as things like the clearances, devolution, Jacobitism, the wars of independence. 
It's become known as one of those intrinsically important aspects of the Scottish past that every Scot needs to know about, not least because of the influence. That time between about the 1720s and the 1780s has had on the moulding of the Scottish present and indeed has as recently been argued the moulding of the modern world. The period of the mid-18th century is then a period of great cultural flowering. And it's important, I think, to begin before I attempt to give my answer to the puzzle, the paradox, the problem, to define what the Scottish Enlightenment was. The first thing to note is it was part of a general European movement in terms of the liberalization of ideas. We must constantly see what happened in Old Scotia during that period as an integral part of a broad Western European dynamic and development. And the two essences of enlightenment, whether in England, in Italy, in the German states, or in France, the two essences were first, a refusal to accept inherited tradition and unwarranted authority. Instead, the men, and indeed the women of the Enlightenment, regarded reality, whether past or present, as needing to be tested against the criteria of reason, of critical evaluation. Inherited position, inherited authority, even including that of the Christian church, was now open for debate and for individualized conclusion. It was a tremendous release, if you like, from the slavery of the human mind, which had been a dominant force in past centuries. The second essence, and this is in a sense where we're moving into the area of a problem from the past or a puzzle from the past. The second major characteristic of it was toleration liberal tolerance of other people's ideas. The possibility that humans could talk in deviant ways, unorthodox ways, about all aspects of life and not necessarily invite condign punishment from authority in church or in state. These two characteristics were supremely important in the broad European Enlightenment. And of course, they were evidenced during the mid to late 18th century in Scotland. But it is absolutely true, ladies and gentlemen, that it's also possible to see a Scottish Enlightenment, not simply the European Enlightenment in Scotland, but a Scottish-flavoured intellectual movement. And I want to suggest that one can see it in at least two or three ways, maybe more, depending on how the presentation goes over the next few minutes. <laughs> I always say that in order to prepare you. If I get only to number two in my list of references, people are waiting for number three. So I don't, uh, I don't tell you how many there are, but there is at least a couple coming up <laughs> as we speak. The, the first thing is this, that of course the philosophers, the scientists, the theologians of the Scottish Enlightenment were molded by their Scottish experience. They were overwhelmingly educated in Scotland, though many had gone abroad for further instruction. They were brought up in the civil society 
of late 17th and early 18th century Scotland. So there was bound to be a Scottishness in the emphasis of their thinking, and particularly a Scottishness inherited from those institutions which were preserved within the Union Act after 1706-7, namely education, religion, law, and primarily, of course, in the educational sphere, higher education, the, uni the universities. But the second thing which is characteristic of the Scottish Enlightenment is its extraordinarily exuberant range. I'm not suggesting in a sense that we should go in for chauvinist, chauvinistic triumphalism. You know, I, I remember vividly two or three years ago, a best-selling text appeared in the USA titled The Scottish Enlightenment, but the subtitle was intriguing. How Western Europe's poorest nation created the modern world, which is perhaps acceptable, and everything in it. <laughs> Even in terms of Scottish braggadocio, that is something. But it did come from the pen of an American, not from the pen of a scholar from, from Scotland. But it is true, it's ranging from geology to poetry, from architecture to painting, from philosophy to, if you like, the new social sciences which were systematized in Scotland in that period. So it's a, it's a galaxy, first of all, of talent, a so-called hotbed of genius, as it was termed in the late 18th century. But it's also, and equally importantly, an issue of range. It's not something related solely to trying to understand man with a capital M on earth and the dynamics of human society. It also is a kind of mindset which worries away at things in the natural world, even relatively practical areas like agronomy, agriculture, how societies, if you like, improve in a material sense. So that's characteristic. But I think the final one that I want to address before going into the, the issue of paradox or puzzle is the fact that there is a specific Scottish feature which I think does identify the Enlightenment in this land from England and from some of the European states. And it's what David Hume himself called the science of man. The focus on the environmental, moral, material influences on humankind. And it's that particular philosophical emphasis which has helped to mould what we now call modernity. The impact of the Scottish Enlightenment in the 19th century and later, of course, in the formation of modern thinking. That's not to say that science in Scotland or medicine in Scotland was irrelevant because there also was world-edge work being done. But it's my, it's my thesis that the human sciences bear the remarkable and redoubtable stamp of Scottishness. And I hope the reasons for that will come through in the rest of my presentation. So what's the puzzle? The puzzle is big enough to challenge any of the country's army growing army of historical scholars. It is this. Literally two to three decades 
before the golden age. Scotland seemed gripped, seemed gripped in conformity, in orthodoxy, and indeed intolerance. A student of this great university, Tom Aikenhead, was executed for blasphemy, found guilty in 1696, executed in early 1697, because he declared that the Old Testament was Ezra's fables and the New Testament was the history of the imposter Christ. Despite an act of contrition, a public act pleading for mercy, he paid the final penalty. A year later, six women in Paisley were charged with the crime of witchcraft. Five were later executed by the intolerable methodology of hanging and then burning. One committed suicide. And this is, as I say, probably when some of the men were talking about were either being born or were in early, early teenage years. The un the, 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 the almost fanatical desire for orthodoxy is also shown by the fact that after the so-called glorious revolution of 1688-9, the victorious Presbyterians determined to purge the land, not of Catholics, of which there were few, but to purge the land of Episcopalian ministers. Between 1690 and 1727, no less than three quarters of all parishes in Scotland, which is slightly over 900, lost their minister because of the outing, the outing process. So tolerance, if you like, there was not. The other fascinating aspect of it is this. Arthur Herman is right. It was one of the world's, or certainly of Europe's, poorest nations. Because the 1690s, as many of you will know, the decade immediately preceding the Union was a period of stark crisis and indeed almost an unrelenting series of disasters in the economic sphere. The, the, the great famines of which we know there were at least four years of famine, of, of subsistence crisis, later to become known as the seven ill years, but basically really only about four to four and a half of them. 15 to 20 percent of Scotland's population died during that period of hunger or famine-related disease. You had the great failure at Darien, the overambitious attempt to create a Scottish colony on the Isthmus of Panama, and the squeezing effect of European mercantilism and also, of course, war on Scottish overseas trade. The problem was, ladies and gentlemen, this relatively small nation of one million-odd people with a, a very limited navy with a very limited and minuscule armed force, was at the mercy of the greater powers. And the imperial wars of the late 17th and early 18th century were bound to marginalize Scotland. So there was absolutely no indication at all in the later 17th century that two to three decades later, we would see this vibrant flowering, not simply of one area of the output of the mind, but a whole variety of different areas. In fact, as late as 1729, the professor of divinity at Glasgow University, John Simpson, was suspended from his academic duties because he was thought to be preaching heterodox, heterodox thinking. This is really within a generation of David Hume becoming acknowledged, if not an atheist, an agnostic, 
but not paying any penalty other than the very grave penalty of never getting a chair in this wonderful institution. <laughs> Scottish universities have a track record in this. James Clark Maxwell, a century and a half later, did not even get tenure at the University of Aberdeen. Einstein said James Clark Maxwell was the most profound influence on his thinking, but he wasn't given a, a confirmed post in Aberdeen University. So we do have a track record in this. That is a footnote, ladies and gentlemen. It's nothing directly to do with this presentation. <laughs> so this is, this is the puzzle. This is the puzzle from the past. And it's my discipline's, I think, great strength to try and worry away at why things happen when you don't expect them to happen, about conundrums, about paradoxes. But it's also, um, I think, the strength of the discipline to constantly ask that question, why? Even if, of course, and hopefully, there's never any complete consensus. Because if there is ever any complete consensus, not only is it impossible for historians to behave like that, but also it would mean the death of the discipline. So what you're going to get for the next um, quarter of an hour in the last 15 minutes of my presentation is one person's, one scholar's view of the resolution of this puzzle. And to do it, I think it's a good way forward, a suitable way forward in terms of the coherence of the argument to look before 1700, indeed even, even over the long-term panorama of Scottish history going right back perhaps even to the Renaissance as a kind of overview. And of course it must be a crude overview given the, the length of time being considered. But then I think that's not sufficient. It's not intellectually satisfying because what we need then to do is to look at the core period of the early to mid 18th century because that's where the catalytic forces gather and combine. We cannot in any way explain individual genius. But what the historian can do is to create or to analyze the conditions for what is essentially a social movement of intellectual excellence. We can't explain why Smith was there at one time, Ferguson or Hume, but we can look at the broad dynamic of environmental and inherited factors which produce that kind of intellectual dynamic. Hugh Trevor Roper, who was one of the very first to investigate the Scottish Enlightenment, talked about the Scottish past before 1700 as dark, as intolerant, the universities, what is it he called them? The, the unreformed seminaries of a fanatical clergy. And of course, that explains why until very recent times, one catalytic factor in the Scottish Enlightenment was said to be the new relationship with England after 1707, as if the civilizing forces emanating from the South would fructify the stony intellectual earth of old Scotia. It is now more or less agreed, and I hope there's nobody in this audience who still adheres to this, that this is one of, as, as Tom Aikenhead would have it, one of Ezra's fables. <laughs> because the reality is now, certainly our current thinking, is that the roots, though not necessarily the direct causes of what we're about this afternoon, 
go right back into the Scottish past. In fact, some of my colleagues are thinking of the 16th century, the late 15th, 16th, early 17th century, the humanists like John Mayer, like Hector Buys, like George Buchanan, beginning to think along some of the same lines that then came to fruition in the 18th century. Because it is the case, ladies and gentlemen, and I say this without any chauvinistic um, partiality, pre-Union Scotland was not an intellectual desert. And the concentration I've given on the crises, conformities and orthodoxies of the 1690s really does, if we don't have the long-term vision, really does give a distorted view of the old society. Here were some of its strengths. Scottish intellectuals were remarkably cosmopolitan before 1700. It is an extraordinary fact that between its foundation and the Reformation, no less than 14 to 15 rectors of the University of Paris were Scots. Work done in my institute in Aberdeen has shown that in the mid-17th century, the rate of Scottish emigration of young males, obviously using fragile materials from that period, was as great in the mid-17th century, the 1650s, 1640s, as it became in the better-known diasporas of the 19th century. Many of them were merchants, mercenaries, etc. But there was a continuous movement between the great universities of Europe, whether it be Orléans, Utrecht, Paris, Leiden, and Scotland. Scottish intellectuals, long before the Enlightenment, were, and indeed for centuries, had tapped in to the general pool of European ideas. And not simply European ideas, but also the growing dynamic in England. It's an interesting fact that the first university to teach the Newtonian methodology was not Isaac Newton's own university, but the Principia Mathematica came out in 1687. By the late 1690s, it was being taught in this place here, and then eventually in two, two, two of the other ancient Scottish universities. So my first point is this, that there was, before 1700, an awareness of and uh, a, relation, a relationship to the, the, uh, the broad, if you like to call it, intellectual vocabulary uh, of Europe. And although it was apparently an isolated society off the northwest coast of Europe, partly and paradoxically for that reason, Scots thought they had to have the connection with the more fortunate areas, both more fortunate areas materially and also more fortunate areas, if you like, in terms of culture and, and intellect. The other thing about pre-1700 is the often criticised Calvinism of Scotland, which of course was arguably the root or one of the roots of the repressive orthodoxy of the late 17th century. But we're now thinking in terms of Calvinism of, if you like, a latent enlightenment because Calvinist thinkers of the late 16th and 17th centuries were obsessed about man's relationship to God and vice versa. Obsessed in terms of their writings. One can therefore speculate that in a more secular age, as the 18th century did steadily become, that obsession of God and man could easily become a fixation on what makes people tick. On if you like, the focus, the concentration on humanity 
which was one of the clear and unambiguous features, as I said at the very beginning of the presentation, of the Enlightenment in Scotland. And then there's the whole educational tradition. One of my great predecessors in this Fraser Chair of Scottish History and Paleography, Professor Gordon Donaldson, a brilliant one-liner in one of his books, about 1660, it was the normal thing for a lowland parish to have at school. A nice phrase. He's not saying everyone had, every parish had, the normal thing for a lowland parish to have at school. That was the parish school. But there was also adventures or private schools. And in the boroughs, of course, there were the so-called grammar schools. Five universities, as you know, two of them in Aberdeen. Extraordinary that Aberdeen had, the borough of Aberdeen had just as many universities as England um, in, the, in the 17th century. <laughs> King's College and, uh, and, 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 and Marshall, Marshall College. Um, we, we, we cannot be certain about the proportions in the 17th century, but when we go into the late 18th and early 19th centuries, then comparative analysis demonstrates, partly because of the growth in student numbers, this institution here, for example, tripled in terms of student numbers between 1680 and 1760. But, 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 but at that time, we can, in fact, speculate, we can give a guesstimate that the proportion of the population, and especially from the middle ranks of the population, going to, onto college, as it was then called in Scotland, was the highest in Western Europe. Not in absolute terms, but in proportion to the base population. It's always intrigued me, ladies and gentlemen, and I haven't got the answer to this, so there might be somebody in the audience who can provide it. The average age going to university in that period was between 14, 15, 16, 16 and a half. The Inquiry into the Wealth of Nations in three volumes by Adam Smith, published in 1776, is not an easy read, but it first emerged as lecture notes to 14, 15 year olds. What has happened to the talent of our young people? <laughs> so the, the, um, the, the, the view of Lord Dacre, aka Hugh Trevor Roper, about a fanatical clergy dominating the seminaries of learning in the 17th century may be true to some degree, but it overlooks the virtuosi of the late 17th century it overlooks the fact that the Royal College of Physicians was founded in the late 17th century, which then became the basic, um, the basic stimulus for the faculties of medicine in this place, as in other places. It also ignores the, the reforms undertaken when he returned from Holland of William Carstairs, who virtually remolded the University of Edinburgh in the late, the late 17th century. So what I'm saying to you in the first instance is it may be too crude, it may be too bold to see the Scottish Enlightenment as a further stage in the nation's intellectual evolution. But what we can say is, we must, in trying to explain the Scottish Enlightenment, take on board those long-term entrails, if you will, those long-term roots that go right back in time. It does not come like a thunderbolt from a clear sky, to use Charles, Beard, Charles Beard's um, famous metaphor for industrialization in the later 
18th century. That long-term set of forces is what I would call a necessary precondition for understanding the roots of this phenomenon, but it's not a sufficient cause. For the last five or so minutes, we must then go into the early to mid-18th century and ask what forces were happening then, what factors were producing the, 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 the broad context, the environment for the flowering that I've talked about in the very first part of my presentation. Uh, here, because it must almost be in terms of headings given the limited time available to me, here is my conspectus on those things that were coming together to provide catalytic dynamic. Politics. Scottish politics were rumbustious in 1706-7 because by and large there was overt hostility outside the Parliament to the Union. By the 1720s, an enormous black economy was running in Scotland based on smuggling and refusal to pay taxes, often involving rioting and violence with customs, customs officials and other uh, revenue administrators. We have, of course, the running sword of Jacobitism, not finally quelled until 1746, April, at Culloden and its aftermath. But by the 1750s, this nation, in which only 0.2% of the population had a vote, had become virtually apolitical. I think that is relevant to this story, because what it meant, ladies and gentlemen, was the intellectuals of that day did not have to take sides. The debate could go on with a degree of tolerance, because the big political issues of the time, if not settled completely, had been at least settled for a period. And then, of course, when we get the French Revolution, there's a further upsurge in the questioning of the status quo. And the men of the Enlightenment added to this stability, because to a man, and virtually all of them were men, to a man, they favored the existing social hierarchy. They believed that property should be the basis of governance, and so they posed no threat whatsoever to the governing elites of Scotland, and therefore there was no constraint on their conversaciones. Politics is important, therefore. So also are the universities. They all reform except one. Daniel Defoe in 1708, talking of St. Andrews, and I quote, it is looking into its grave. <laughs> Dr. Johnson, visiting it in 1772, almost alive. <laughs> now, I mean, there may be some in this audience who, who greet these statements with a degree of schadenfreude. But I think we can all congratulate St. Andrews in recovering, <laughs> in recovering from, from this expectation of mortality. That was nothing to do with the inadequacy of St. Andrews. It was to do with the fact that the other major institutions were all in vibrant and developing urban centres because the relationship between the Enlightenment and the changing society in Scotland was profound. But there are so many innovations. The teaching in English the movement towards a specialised professoriate, the creation of new chairs, not one chair in divinity or theology. By the late 18th century in this university here, there were more chairs in medicine than in divinity or theology. And partly because the tradition, which I think we should bring back into this institution and others, of professors being paid a modest stipend, but 
Uh, final remuneration depends on the numbers who attend the lecture, right? Final remuneration depends on a per capita or a capitation tax. There were some that had to be some brilliantly gifted teachers in the institution. Uh, my my, my, my favourite is Dougal Stewart, a bit later in time. As one of his students recalled, there was eloquence in his very spitting. <laughs> so, if you like, the university has become more of an effective vehicle for the transmission of ideas. And unlike France or England, where a salon culture was the vehicle, the universities were at the heart. And I think this might be relevant to the later discussion we're going to have about the position of Scotland in in 2006. The universities were at the heart of the Scottish Enlightenment. Either people trained in them or members of staff were the core. So that's important, the changing educational, the changing educational scene. Equally and thirdly, I would argue, is the nature of Scottish society. And if I was to pick out one of the, the variables with only two minutes to go, one of the variables in this story, which is, I think, at the heart of it, is Stanley Unwin used to say, the thunderbolt of it, the fundamental. It is the relationship between the changing nature of Scotland and the thinkers, especially those individuals who are trying to understand the human environment, human change, amelioration, that Scots word improvement, and all the rest. And it was by no means restricted to this city as was indicated, I think, wrongly last night. It was found in the universities, the university cities of Glasgow and Aberdeen, and it was also widely diffused among the educated classes of Scotland, as we know from that great encyclopedia of Scotland published in the 16, 1790s, the first or all statistical account, which is almost a metaphor for the Scottish Enlightenment. Why is it that Scotland's changing society, in my view, is at the heart of this story? It's at the heart of it because when you read the works of Ferguson, to some extent Hume, certainly Reed, and above all Smith, what they are trying to do is to A, understand why this society is changing so rapidly. Scotland's economic miracle of the late, late 18th century was the fastest in Europe. The Scottish Highlands moved from tribalism to clanship, from clanship to tribalism over almost a generation. And that's partly produced the agony of adjustment, what we call, we call the clearances. And these men, although they were capable of thinking at a very abstract level, were profoundly affected by the forces operating in their own society. Questions like, how do we catch up with that great elephant to the south, England? How, what are the forces which condemn us to poverty? And how can we get out of that poverty? What, in a sense, are the elements? What are the influences that might cure our profound, and it was a profound, deficiency motivation? A confidence problem. Again, there's echoes down to this day. All of these things, if you like, this laboratory for social scientific thought, which was Scotland in that period, you know, the four or five stage theory of human development, they were able to look to the Scottish Highlands and see a movement from what they regarded as primitive feudalism to capitalism during their lifetime and try to understand the dynamics of it. So, in a sense, in conclusion, 
my attempt to resolve the conundrum, and there'll be further and many further attempts uh, by scholars over future generations, is that we must consider the cultural, intellectual inheritance of Scotland pre-1700 and not write, write that period off as the darkness before the light because there is an umbilical cord of relationship. But secondly, that there are factors and new factors operating in the early to mid-18th century, which, if you want to see it in simple terms, as I often tend to do, provide the essential catalyst for this creative, creative explosion. Thank you. Tom, as always, that was fascinating, and uh, there is indeed eloquence in your very spitting. <laughs> um, we're going to have a discussion for the next hour or so. Let me introduce uh, our other three uh, panelists here. Um, Jeffrey Bolton, uh, sitting next to Tom, is uh, Vice Principal of the University and Regis Professor of Geology and Minerality at the University of Edinburgh. And as he said before we came on stage here, he is our token scientist today. Um, he's been a member of the Council of the Natural Environment Research Council and of the Royal Commission on Environmental Pollution. Uh, and a couple of years ago, he was appointed to the Prime Minister's Council for Science and Technology. Joyce is outstanding uh, journalist and uh, arts critics and one of the wisest of our columnists. Uh, she's been involved in Scottish and Europe, the Scottish and European campaign on democracy and human rights and has recently played uh, a leading role in establishing the National Theatre of Scotland. Uh, James Boyle, many of you will know already, of course, uh, formerly one of my bosses at the BBC as controller of Radio 4, before that controller of BBC Radio Scotland, and uh, more recently chairman of the Scottish Arts Council and chair of the, uh, appointed by the Scottish Executive to chair the Cultural Commission. Um, let me start off by um, asking one question, and then we've got some questions also from the floor. Um, the Enlightenment was about establishing the supremacy of the autonomous mind, and all of you are indeed autonomous minds. Is the legacy of that period secure, uh, or do, does it need to be continually renewed and reinforced and indeed reinvented? Is the autonomous mind in today's world secure? Is there potential today for a new enlightenment, uh, or are we simply enjoying the benefits of, uh, as heirs of uh, the period that Tom was, was talking about? Let me start with uh, Geoffrey Bolton. Uh, well, uh, I, can, can, is this clear, by the way? Can everyone hear? Thanks. And I, I speak as a, a scientist, and I think arguably we, we are the most unreconstructed uh, heirs of the Enlightenment. Uh, and if one asks the question, as Alan has, uh, are we in the midst of another enlightenment, or, or is one imminent? I think I'd hark back to a <clears throat> phrase that Tom used, uh, and that was that uh, the, uh, one of the great concerns uh, of, the, of, the peop of, of the scholars of the enlightenment was with practical improvement. And uh, I, I, I would say that uh, if one looks at the objectives of the natural sciences that developed during the Enlightenment in Europe, in which the Scottish contribution was particularly and empirically based 
practicality. Um, the broad view was that the Enlightenment was, uh, or, or, or the, the role of science was to create an exact picture of reality, to discover truth. And I think that one of the things that we, that one of the greatest discoveries of science is that in fact that's impossible. Uh, as, as Bertolt Brecht uh, once wrote, the aim of science isn't to open the doors to infinite wisdom, uh, but to set a limit to infinite error. And it's the skepticism from which that arises which is crucial. I, I would say that if one looks at the advances in scientific understanding, that are the legacy of this fact-based uh, en enlightenment, um, they have resulted in today's world being, uh, in, uh, in a borrowed phrase, uh, the best of times, the worst of times. Uh, so we live in the best of times. We are, we are healthier, we are better fed, uh, we have a global life expectancy which over the last 50 years has risen from approximately 46 years to 64 years. Uh, and gladly the discrepancy between life expectancy in the developed world compared with that of the developing world uh, has shifted from uh, a difference of 24 years to a still disgraceful 12, but nonetheless an improvement. And over the last 35 years we've doubled the global agricultural uh, production um, uh, and, and use only 10% more land. Uh, but I think we also live in or are on the brink of uh, the worst of times. Uh, we consume uh, about half of the world's terrestrial uh, or organic productivity. Uh, we could not feed uh, today's population with yesterday's, agri yesterday's agriculture. And it's extremely unlikely we'll be able to feed tomorrow's population with today's agriculture. Last year, more than half the atoms of nitrogen and phosphorus that went to, um, into the growth of green plants on Earth came from organic fertilizers, and only half came from the natural cycles, natural cycles of the Earth. Today, the Earth has about six and a half billion people. We expect within the next 50 years that number to grow to uh, uh, about nine billion. And in addition, as hopefully most of you will know and be concerned about, uh, the Earth's atmosphere has been changing dramatically as a consequence of our activities. Uh, the atmosphere is very much our thermostat and will almost certainly commit us to dangerous climatic change, the consequences of which are really, un really extremely difficult to evaluate. And there are many other things. Now, in my view, these, these problems are bigger problems, greater problems that the human species has ever collectively faced if they are realized. Uh, do we have the capacity di to directly face them uh, and the individual and collective rationality to, to address them? And, and my view, that is part of the challenge for a new, en new enlightenment. It's the large practical issues of the day which ought to be the drivers of our, our concern and our response. But unfortunately, many people um, and many institutions find the, the questioning and uncertainties of rational inquiry to be much less comfortable uh, than the certainty of fundamentalist dogma and revelation, uh, uh, many of which claim to have uh, a special route to certainty that is not um, based on observation or experiment. And I believe that when, when people believe that, they open the door to tragedy. So across cultures and countries, West and East, uh, many are scandalized by pluralism, uh, and toleration of other beliefs, 
Uh, they're scandalized by non-traditional gender roles, by reliance on reason rather than divine revelation, uh, by democracy, which grants power to people rather than to God. So before we pride ourselves and praise ourselves by claiming a new enlightenment, I think what we must do is all stand up in defense of reason. Um, could we do it here? Why not? Joyce. I think the autonomous mind is something that's, that's always under threat. I mean, as, as we've just heard in, in Professor Devine's brilliant um, lecture, um, in the late 17th century in Scotland, the autonomous mind was still under very severe threat, uh, certainly in some instances, um, from an authoritarian um, and hierarchical um, religious system which, um, which displayed very high levels of um, intolerance and insistence on um, orthodoxy and actually displayed great fear in the face of any threats to that orthodoxy and that's something um, with which I think all of us are still familiar both in our day-to-day -day lives and in our global politics. Um, today I think the autonomous mind faces different threats um, when the Enlightenment happened in Scotland in the 18th century, what you saw were a lot of minds exploding into a kind of creative autonomy, but remaining very, very engaged with the social and economic and, and scientific and academic systems of their time. Now we are allowed a great deal of autonomy so far as our minds are concerned, but there are tremendous economic and social forces which make it difficult for us to engage with the collective lives of our society. We feel as if the levers are not there, um, the meaning is often absent, um, and, the, and the, 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 the effective autonomous mind is probably almost as difficult um, uh, uh, to achieve as it was in the early 18th century, but for very, very um, different reasons. So I think the autonomy of the mind is something that always has to be fought for and struggled for. There are always forces um, which, which, which conspire against it. And in, I think particularly in our time, um, what we need to do is to become adept at spotting a kind of false autonomy, which says, well, you can think what you like, but you can't do anything about it. You can't engage with your society using your mind to actually begin to develop, to devise ways in which your society can change and, yes, let's say improve, because, you know, it's a tremendous um, 18th century Scottish word. And I think uh, the day the human race gives up believing in improvement is the day that it really is um, all over. So, no, I don't think the autonomous mind is secure. I think we always have to fight for it. And can we fight for it here? Why not? Yes, yes, I think we can. James. Well, I'd, I'd like to use an enlightenment method to, to, to answer this. I'd like to look dispassionately uh, and with a, a critical eye at where we are now. What does the place look like? Well, um, we could be at home watching uh, racing in Channel 4, couldn't we? But in fact, this university is doing exactly what Tom described as one of the key dynamics of change in the 18th century. We've got a continuum, and I don't, if I may say so, that could have been emphasized more, a continuum between the university and the community that I don't remember uh, in the last um, in the period of my life. And it's not just Edinburgh, but Aberdeen uh, and St Andrews. We've got an extraordinary flourishing in Scottish universities at the moment. And that flourishing, to come to another one of your words, Tom's, Tom, is about a cosmopolitan view. It's drawn by principles who are acting not as super dominies, but as visionaries. 
Where are we going and how do we engage with the rest of the world? Now, I, th- I think if you, if you can come upon a situation like this, the continuum between the university and the community, and we can gather people into a hall like this, then we're showing good stewardship, good stewardship, and I use that word advisedly, of the Enlightenment. I think I did not expect to see what's happened in the last 10 years since devolution. Almost overnight, Scotland stopped being that awful thing it was when I was young, a counterculture, simply defined by being not England. And we suddenly moved to a position where we're slightly embarrassed but crabbing into a position of having aspirations for our business and our education that are cosmopolitan, that are worthwhile, that are realizable uh, and are within our own hands. Let me tell you three things that I think we do exceptionally well at the moment while we're talking about enlightenment and what's good in our country. I think in Scotland, university education is as good as it's ever been, and this new stance of the universities is particularly encouraging. But so too is early education. We're amongst the best in Europe at both provision and quality of early education. We've got that. Education is still something right in our grasp in Scotland. Another thing that we, that we have happened on, and this is the coincidence perhaps of genius, of what, how do you happen to get Smith and Kames and, and Hume at one time? We've got an extraordinary and very welcome flowering of writing in this country. We've got novelists who are popular all over the world. But if you sweep them from the stage, if you take away Ian Rankin and Alexander McCall Smith and Joanna, are rolling. You've still got some of the best writers in the world. We've got poets like Kathleen Jamie, Robert Robinson, we've got Don Patterson, we've got novelists like James Robertson who are Booker Prize nominees. We've got such strength and depth, the National Theatre producing writing that we, we now know is, is on a par, we're told by the, the London critics, is on a par with Nicholas Heitner's National Theory. It's an, National uh, Theatre. It's an extraordinary flood. We are the city of literature. The city of literature, UNESCO city of literature, again thinking of the continuum, would not have happened without this university. It simply wouldn't have happened without the support of Vicky Bruce, Sheila Cannell, and the other librarians here. That, that's something extraordinary, that flowering of writing. And the third thing I think is um, we now have um, a business sector which has got at least one indisputably a global player, the Royal Bank, and Scottish Power is another with aspirations in, in that direction. We've got a business in, infrastructure that might just favour our own country. I think that that dynamic is an extraordinary thing. And if I can come to the word stewardship in, in finishing, in my lifetime, we've moved away because we've had to from the things that uh, and thinking about Jeffrey's points, we've moved away from believing that we are the proprietors of the planet to being its stewards, partly because we've had to. Uh, global warming is something that's here, it's a danger to us, our children, and our grandchildren. We've changed that, that posture. Could we have a new enlightenment? Well, we've also, in my time, begun to see ourselves as uh, the stewards, both of the, of the planet uh, and its humanity. Western liberal tradition is beginning, is beginning actually to bolt down, particularly in this country, into a, a kind of secular humanism. Not the United States, but here. Let me say why I think that matters. If you walk across the road, you're going to see a big building site for the university's informatics center. 
I think that Scotland, with its traditions, with this kind of activity in the university, the continuum, with its tradition of, with its present of writing and its tradition of discourse, what you're doing, Tom, I think that the next point in which we can look and make a contribution to the planet, and remember, the Enlightenment is something that changed the world. I believe Arthur Herman's phrase is right. We should be thinking what we begin to, what we begin to shape about informatics and the future of the moment when the future of engineered intelligence and natural informatics begins to converge. What are we going to think about that? This university is in a position to begin to lead that debate, and it's a very profoundly important debate. We sit at the moment in a moment when the United States is run by a government that's not just full of religious zealots, but is anti-science, has had a profoundly destructive sense in science. Here in, in Scotland, we have some leading thinking on informatics. We have the infrastructure. We have the business to be able to do something about it when we have to earn money from it. And I'm pretty convinced that we are about to come to a phase where not only will we be studying, researching, and pulling in knowledge in informatics, but we'll be discussing it in a lively way and in a popular way and beginning to let the rest of the world see where our next stewardship goes. And that stewardship, and please don't think I'm crazy for saying this, but that stewardship is not just about stewardship of the planet and partnering the planet, but it's about the stewardship of technology. How, how will we work in partnership with, our, with technology? Because we're not proprietors or clients. We're here as human beings to share that. And that final thing, that conflation of artificial and engineered informatics seems to me the next crucial point. And we're here in a center that's very, very well equipped to, uh, to lead that debate. Thank you very much. Thank you all. Um, obviously, I'll be brief because I've had half, half an hour and my colleagues have only had two or three minutes. Um, as James was speaking so eloquently, and also Joyce and, and, and Jeff, um, but particularly what we've just heard from James Boyle in terms of a, a very positive uh, view of Scotland, because I think Joyce and Jeff are speaking perhaps more broadly, um, Jeff, in fact, speaking. In, in global terms. I was reminded of that uh, famous, one might even say notorious intervention by a former pupil of Glasgow Academy on the 1st of January this year. I think it was in the Daily Telegraph, but it was then republished in the Scotsman, describing Scotland as the Belarus of the West. <laughs> this, of course, was a distinguished member of staff at what is regarded, I think, in terms of these international league tables of universities as the world's top university, namely Harvard. Uh, I was asked to comment on this and, of course, profoundly disagreed. So I would go a long way with uh, what James Boyle has said. But can I, can I try and deepen it slightly and, and, as I say, try to be succinct about it, both in terms of the positive aspect but also in terms of the threat the more negative area, the best of times, the worst of times, as Professor Bolton has said, and particularly focusing on Scotland. Uh, there's, there's, there, there seems to me to be 
at least three ways in which I can see a straight comparator between 2006 or the last 25 years and the period I was talking about of the mid-18th century. The first is, and I have argued this in the, the revised version of the Scottish Nation that the principal uh, referred to so kindly in his introductory remarks, which will be published on St Andrew's Day. <laughs> I couldn't resist it. Uh, this year. And, and one, one, one of the arguments in one of the new chapters is that Scotland has undergone um, a revolution, and particularly a material and to a significant extent social revolution over the last quarter of a century, unparalleled since the classic industrial revolution. We're probably unaware of it, but once you see the statistical evidences, there is no gain saying it. It has happened. Just to give one example, an economic structure that supported this land from the 1830s down to the 1980s literally disappeared like snow off a dike in a spring day over a period of a few years. And we now have reinvented ourselves as a post-industrial economy. That's a bit like the 18th century in terms of the speed and the profundity and, as my three colleagues have said, the challenges of change. The second thing is this. I was, I was, I was listening carefully to the, um, uh, the speech of a former student of this place, Dr. Gordon Brown, another historian, by the way, um, in his statement uh, about uh, Britishness, one of his recent forays into that area. And Gordon Brown got it absolutely right, at least in one respect. The universities now are the key drivers of the material future in Scotland, recognised both by business, by politicians of all political parties. And that's very similar again to the 18th century. Universities in Scotland were never, and never have been, the concept of the uni, you know, that intimacy of relationship between the seat of learning and the local population. They were never arcane citadels of learning. But I can assure you as an historian, down at least to the 1960s, they were mainly teaching institutions. Now we have some of, what, some of the best world-class research, especially in the life sciences, in medicine, and to a degree also in ele electronics. And that is all Scotland has left, its talent, its brain power, its ability. How very similar to the mid-18th century in that sense. Because what in my analysis has always allowed the Scots in that generation not to be exploited by the Union, not to be taken advantage of the, of the Union, not to experience the development of underdevelopment like Ireland experienced was, the Sc Scots society was able to turn both threats and opportunities emanating from the Union relationship to its advantage. And I hope that can be the case today. Now just one or two things about the negatives, the menace, the sinister forces, relativism, postmodernism, postmodernism. I mean, if you talk about computer viruses, I think my own noble and historic discipline has been little infected by postmodernism. But many other disciplines have been. And essentially, for those who don't know what I'm talking about, in crude terms, that particular approach means, I think actually, it's an attack on reason of the way that Jeffrey expounded it. 
in the sense it means that virtually anybody's opinion is as good as the others, that there is no, if you like, convincing route to, not certainty, but to a convincing route to a cogent answer. This is explains the, the democracy of the phone-in on Radio Scotland. <laughs> Itself one of the most malign influences in the modern, in the modern nation. I was in discussion with the senior officers of the Saltar Society a few months ago, and one of the ideas I was, I was trying to put forward was something like this. The Saltar Society organizing major, maybe a couple, of, year, couple of, of times a year, maybe even just once a year, a very high-profile debate on an issue of concern to the nation. And my suggestion for the first topic was Radio Scotland, colon, a national humiliation. Discuss. <laughs> As many of you know, we asked uh, people to send in questions in advance, and we've got uh, one. Let's start with a question from Neil Davidson. Is Neil Davidson here? It's hard for me to see. Can you put your hand? Yeah, great. You've got the microphone. Good. Thank you. Goes on. Yep. That's it. Thank you. Um, it picks up from the, the last point that Tom Devine made in his actual lecture uh, about the relationship between social development and uh, the Enlightenment. And one thing about it, the timing of the Enlightenment, is that most of the major works seem to happen after Culloden and after the suppression of the Jacobite threat and indirectly the French absolutist threat. And it strikes me sometimes we take a very passive view of the Enlightenment, that it's a commentary or people thinking in universities and elsewhere about what's happening in the society. But is it maybe not better to see it actually in, in the way that Tom Devine mentioned as a social movement, not just of seven or eight great men, but actually of a whole thing going all the way down to society through the journals, the coffee houses, the agricultural societies, where ideas were discussed. And that maybe what was going on was actually more in the way of a social revolution or a programme for changing the Scottish economy. When you think about um, Scottish agriculture, to which Tom Devine has devoted, I think, his best book, um, that was transformed in about 40 or 50 years at exactly the same time as the Enlightenment's happening. And I don't think it's an accident these things are happening concurrently. So perhaps the question really is, should we maybe think of the Enlightenment more, not just as an intellectual thing, but as an actual programme for transforming Scottish feudal agriculture and the economy more generally into the kind of dynamic capitalist economy that it became by about 1815, 1820? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, very, good, very good question, and in a sense you've answered it yourself. <laughs> Um, but that won't stop me from giving a few further observations. But again, again, very, very quickly, um, we have, and I think we have successfully, Neil, taken the study of the Scottish Enlightenment out of the grasping hands of the intellectual historians, because it must be seen within the kind of broader context that you've identified in the preliminary to your, to your question. And I think there is now a recognition that it is not simply about a galaxy of geniuses, but it's, a, it's about a, this kind of broad dynamic uh, that you've identified, and I tried to identify in my lecture. And it is absolutely true, when you get down to those musty documents, some of them never opened um, for centuries, in sheriff court records, in the factorial accounts of the estate administrators who changed uh, our society so profoundly. It never, it never ceases to am amaze me as I go around rural Scotland 
Clearly, there are signs of recent modernity in rural Scotland, but the structure we see, the physical structure of the land, the separate steadings, the roadway systems, the hedges, the dikes, all of that was built, fashioned, created between the 1760s and the early 19th century, and that inheritance is still there. And if you look at the way in which they went about creating what they thought was order out of natural chaos, one of the favourite sayings was, lands in a state of nature are unacceptable. It was almost like the ethic that founded the new town down there in Edinburgh, that there had to be a dynamic of, 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 of rationalism. And this is one of the reasons why I think and why I have some sympathy for the, the so-called clearing landowners in the Highlands and their factorial agents. I honestly think there was a, an intellectual barrier between them and the people. Because, all right, many of them were in this for profit, of course. Uh, many of them were in it for reasons of consumerism. But there was always also this intellectual legitimization that the role of reason when applied to agronomy, to apply to agricultural improvement, was a good thing morally. And they simply, simply could not comprehend the reaction of the people who they thought were both reactionary and also recalcitrant. Professor Bolton, let me um, connect, uh, connect that question with a point that you were raising. One of the great things that grew out of the uh, enlightened thinking in the 18th century was the American Constitution and the system of government that they still practice. The impression that I got from what you said in your introductory remarks is that the world that today we face challenges for which that way of governing is simply not adequate. I mean, does that mean we need some, some kind of new, we have to rethink that 18th century model? Well, I, I think we have to, I, I think that there, there's not a crisis of democracy, I think, but actually I think democratic forms do have some particular problems at the moment. And in a sense, they're almost exemplified in this room. I mean, if you think about the changes that have happened the last 30, 40, 50 years in, in this, con this country and beyond, one of the things that's happened is this enormous extension of higher education which notwithstanding some of the siren voices that often criticize it, I regard as a, as a wholly and unadulteratingly good, good thing. What that has done, it's given, a, it's created a population of ordinary citizens like us who um, have as much expert, who represent as much expertise and knowledge out with government than is contained within it. Uh, at the same time, we have lost the old habits of deference and we're much less happy simply for a distant uh, polity to make a decision on our behalf, which we're then expected to respond to. To some degree, it's the dynamic of devolution. Um, the question then arises, well, how do modern societies make decisions? Uh, arguably, it's very difficult for them, um, simply because uh, within this room, I'm sure, about major issues, energy is a good one. Energy is the, the debate about energy at the moment in Scotland is a very, is a, is a very polarized one, and I would guess there are probably a couple of dozen diametrically opposed positions in this room. The question then is, how does the Scottish executive make a decision about that? How does the UK government make a decision about that? And I think there's a real problem. And above and beyond that, if you like, movement towards um, localism, there's also obviously a much greater need for internationalism. Because some of these problems, and if we're talking about energy again, is quite a good one, because the pollution that we create affects people in China, and the pollution that they create affects us. And, and it's, I, I think, 
uh, there are a whole series of issues that have exactly these two poles, the local pole in the, uh, and the global pole. And I think the question for us is a crucial one and an important one for Scotland, is how do we relate to those two? Um, I, I think I, I don't want to sound like the kind of pessimistic one um, because I absolutely agree particularly with many of the things that James said about the underlying strengths of Scotland's response to post-modernity, if you like. I think it's been creative. I think it's been more intelligently collective than the response in, in many places. And I think the role of um, education in particular in Scotland remains, um, um, as James said, particularly strong. But I think there are real threats to our capacity to emulate the achievement of the, the early 18th century. I already mentioned the threat which comes from having a kind of false autonomy, from being so kind of individualized and fragmented that yes, you can think and say what you like, but nobody's listening fundamentally. Nobody cares. There is no civic space into, into which to put that debate. So I think, number one, we have to think about um, reconstructing, maintaining, being attentive to the health of our civic space. The, the, the pressures on people's time to be citizens now are absolutely immense. I'm sure there are people sitting in this hall who have got partners or other people back home who are annoyed because you're not down at home base or you know, doing those things that people just have to do on a Saturday in order to, to, to sort of continue, you know, to keep the economic wheels of our consumer society churning and the pressure on people's time in, in affluent Western societies is huge and of course in other societies people face other pressures. So we have to be attentive to, to whether we have enough civic space. I was very struck by the section of Tom's lecture where he talked about the peace in a sense that was given to intellectuals and, and, and social theorists to get on with their work by the fact that there was a certain minimum consensus about the constitutional situation and about the basics of the economy, about the, the law of property and so on. I don't think we have either of those preconditions here at the moment. I think we are not in a resolved constitutional situation, nor are we likely to be any time in the next decade. And we're not, above all, and haven't been since the rise of Thatcherism in the beginning of the 1970s, in a situation where there's any real consensus about about the proper role of the state, where its limits should be and, 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 and how it should act. And I think one of the roles that Scotland could actually play because of our tremendous um, tradition in political theory and in kind of practical um, political thinking, if you like, is to try and move the whole of the sort of debate about politics on from this stalemate between those who want to roll back the state and those who still have time for kind of substantive state action in areas of society. I think we really need to develop a new consensus on that, to have a kind of enlightenment atmosphere um, developing. And finally, I do think we face a whole series of new intellectual challenge, challenges to do with a loss of confidence in the sort of American constitutional model that we've talked about. People are increasingly feeling a lack of confidence in their democratic institutions, not because they can think of anything better, but because they can see the ineffectiveness of, say, a typical modern UK government or the Scottish executive in dealing with some of the huge problems that Geoffrey has been talking about. So there's a loss of confidence um, in democratic institutions and there's also, as, as Jeffrey has also said, a loss of confidence in reason and science because of the perceived failures of reason and science to deal with some of the huge ethical and spiritual issues that we face. So I think we need a real intellectual push to formulate new ways of interfacing between reason and, 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 and faith, if you like, reason and belief, um, which was a major topic in the old Enlightenment, but to which we need new answers now. <clears throat> James. 
Well, I'm sorry to say that I think at the heart of politics today is a universal suspicion that uh, polit politicians do not act with honesty or integrity. Um, the, that, 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 is a, that is a corrosive thing. It's a terribly corrosive thing. If you go back to what Joyce and, and Jeffrey were, were saying, I, I do think, looking at the American model, that the, the disadvantages of that are now stark. And, and we see, looking back through the, the presidencies, how easy it is to buy the White House. However, I think that shouldn't blind us to the practical applications of what Joyce is saying. I think our intellectual push has to be towards building a new Bill of Rights and a new con a constitution for, uh, for the United Kingdom, for Scotland. I think we actually have to put down in words the things that we be believe as human beings in order to guard against that terribly difficult thing at the middle of politics in our, in our cosmopolitan society, the bit where our contemporary uh, libertarian values hit the zealotry of uh, uh, religion and uh, ideologues who, who actually are not just facing in a separate direction but are, are running counter to our culture. And I think the intellectual effort that it would take might just begin to address the whole business of what is politics for because at the moment we, we've reached an awful position where we look at politicians and we think what is it that you want to get out of your position not you are my elected representative we look with skepticism and sometimes quite open distaste and that cannot be right what can we do it practically and intellectually i think we have to address the business of telling ourselves what we believe, and that can only be an intellectual push towards re-describing their constitutional position. Well, we've to some extent um, preempted the, the next question I wanted to take, but since we're, we've begun on this, uh, is Ava Tyson here? Can you, Ava or Eva Tyson? Can you make yourself, it's hard for me to see because we've got light shining. Oh, there you are, yes. Yes. Uh, the Enlightenment in Europe managed to break the power of the church and the power that the church had over people and people were encouraged to use reason and think for themselves and today we are in the grip of another power the media and spin doctors and it seems to me that we need a new enlightenment and how does the panel think it could be led let me just uh, as, a, as a, a way of testing public disquiet about this, how many people here would agree with the thesis on which that, with, with the premise on which that is based? There is real public disquiet about this, isn't there? Yeah. Joyce? Yeah, well, I think for all of us who work in the media, and Alan knows this even better than I do, um, this is a question that constantly comes up. And, um, you know, um, what I often say is it's because I'm in seminar, you know, discussions like this, discussing these things, that I am not one of those people um, editing a newspaper or running a, running a news program on, on television. There is a kind of, uh, you know, a real difficulty, I think, in in analyzing and, if you like, democratizing media power in the, in the widest possible sense of that term, um, um, which is that there's a widespread culture of denial, I think, in the media about the power that they exercise and an unwillingness to engage in, in serious public debate about it. And I did actually once hear a senior executive quite recently, I mean, within the last five years, of a major BBC news program and actually using the phrase, we don't create people's view of the world, we just report the world. He was absolutely unwilling to take responsibility 
responsibility for the way in which the, the, the decisions about news priorities he was making was actually shaping the way people perceive the world. And that is frightening. There's no way you can avoid the media having power. But when it's in such denial about its power that it won't even begin um, to be accountable for it, um, that is scary. Um, however, I think, I think the media is, are not the only um, kind of source of, 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 of dangerous power in our society. And you have to be um, 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 careful of the kind of blaming the messenger um, syndrome as well. I mean, the media are a problem. It's not a problem to which there's an easy solution. Um, but I think the only solution that I can perceive as a journalist is that the media step up and begin to take more responsibility for the complexity and the profundity of the job that they do in shaping people's perception of the world. But I do think that we don't need to be complacent either about the, the breaking of religious power or the breaking of the power of religious ideas um, to control people's minds. People have a, a kind of infinite capacity. Who was it? Was it Gerard Manley? No, was it someone? Uh, Carl, no, I can't remember who it was. Some great figure of the 19th century who said that when people stop believing in something, they don't believe in nothing, they believe in anything. And I think there are profound sort of signs of that in our society. I think there's a lot of irrationalism around. And I think a lot of people who lack meaningful forms of civic and rational ways of, of, of leading a collective life are very, very drawn often to fundamentalist forms of belief, whether religious or political. And you can certainly see that in some of Britain's minority communities. You can also see it in some areas of our majority communities. People more and more drawn to kind of fundamentalist sets of belief. So while we challenge the media as a source of unaccountable power, which it certainly is, um, I think we also need to beware of thinking that the media are, you know, our, our major problem or our only problem. I don't think that's the case. And a strong, confident, well-educated public can always spot nonsense coming from the media and has the strength to resist that. Tom, do you see... Um... Do you see a parallel between the, the priesthood uh, from which minds were liberated in the 18th century and Alistair Campbell and the armed legion of spin doctors? Yeah, I, I can see Alistair Campbell uh, not as a Protestant or Presbyterian clergyman, but as a 16th century Jesuit. <laughs> yeah? Um, just a, the ends can, justify the means. Can, can I just say something briefly and then ask Joyce and perhaps James as well, because obviously they, they know the area much better than I do. But, I mean, one of the extraordinary things about the historical dimension that I was talking about is uh, men of that time and women of that time did not see any incompatibility between this liberation of the mind and the attempt to understand and reveal religion. In fact, the whole Scottish Enlightenment is coloured by religion, and several of them were either sons of the manse or even practising ministers themselves. And one of the dynamics uh, which gave, uh, if you like, an, in an intellectual power to religiosity and especially to the Christian religiosity was some of these individuals were concerned to learn more about their environment because by learning more about earth they would discover more about what they thought were the doings of the creator. So I, 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 think, I think what I'm really saying to you is that I don't, I don't think we should necessarily see religion with a capital R as dark and enlightenment with a capital E good. It's much more complex than that but I do agree that, especially if you look at the last two centuries of European history, I don't think I've actually ever, since the, since the Enlightenment, seen such a drive towards what our colleagues are calling fundamentalism. I mean, there was some of it, if you like, evangelicalism in the mid-19th mid century, but that was attenuated also 
by a reason, a, an, art, a, an attitude which was fundamentally based on the, 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 the reason, the, the reasoned uh, tradition of, of, of the Enlightenment. And I think there are elements both in the USA and, of course, in other parts of the world coming from quite different religious confraternities where you can see almost the danger for universal collision in the future. It's a new kind of tribalism um, in that sense. But the question I was going to ask, to bring it down to the more parochial area of both, uh, both Joyce uh, and James, um, you know, going back to some of the things I've been writing over the last uh, six months, a year or so, the, 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 the blatant gap between the reporting in the Scottish press and the realities of modern Scottish history from about the 1980s, and especially since devolution. Now, I know that MSPs will always blame the media, but it seems to me, and I have actually used the word malign in one of the chapters, you know, that, that, that is, there is something, I, I, I just would, I do, not, I do not understand why it's happened, especially since some of these vehicles were so fundamental to the delivery of devolution. And it's almost as if they've turned. The parents have turned on the child. Is there any explanation? Or maybe you don't agree with the premise. James. Well, I, I, I have to say, I, th I wondered which world I was living in when I began to read a Scotsman that patently hated its own country and most of the people in it. And I, you know, I, I look at that and I, I don't want to trace the thread back no. to the previous proprietors and all the rest of it, but I do want to make, I, well, because I want to make a more important practical problem about places like this pu pushing out young people, irrespective of whether the media is malign, irrespective of anything else. One of the things that we should acknowledge and we should teach and, and we should have at the centre of education is the business of uh, telling youngsters that when they go out into the world, they will need not only learning, but they will need top communication skills, and above all else, they will need courage. Because whether they're in the business of uh, learning about energy and joining Scottish Power, or whether they're going to be liberal councillors on the border, or whether they're going, whatever they're going to go into, they're going to be in a combative world that will need real courage for them to be able to say not just what's expedient or what's expected in the particular peer group, but what is right. And that concept of what is right seems to me absolutely missing from contemporary politics. One of the great salutary lessons of contemporary politics is Peter Mandelson. It was more he than, than Alistair Campbell who created New Labour. And the media that he, and I, I think it's fair to say, shaped and bullied into shape, turned on him and turned him upside down and drove him from office several times. Did, I, I don't care whether he deserved it or didn't deserve it. Again, I don't think that matters particularly, but the media are enormously powerful, it's an enormously powerful blind animal. You know, don't get into that cage if you're not prepared to fight. But for everyone, every, every youngster coming out of this university ought to be told, you will need to be able to communicate, you will need to be able to tell your story, and you will need to be able to do it with courage. That's the condition of modern life. I wish that were the condition of politics. This is why, despite the fact that we've been very positive about the universities in our conversations, there's not enough people in these, these institutions very highly trained people 
with what you call the courage to get out there and be public intellectuals and declaim in terms of their particular expertise. Because I doubt, James, whether they would suffer from the same kind of opprobrium or mistrust that you might get from politicians. And there are very, very few individuals in universities, maybe because of research assessment exercises and other calls in their time, who are willing to actually speak directly in a robust way to the media. Let, let me try to be slightly unpopular. Um, I, I think the media has the power we give to it. And I, I think the difficulty is that we have either vacated or not occupied the public space that is there for us to occupy. And I think one of the challenges to us in this society is to ask ourselves the question, how do we do that? If you recall, seven years ago, we had great hopes of something that we called civic society somehow blossoming. I think that some very positive steps have been made, but that blossoming hasn't yet occurred. And I think we need somehow to find ways of occupying that space. I think we'll then probably get the media we deserve. Are we doing it today? Isn't, isn't yeah. this? I think this is part, this is absolutely, this is part of it. And this seems to me, the fact that the Edinburgh International Book Festival sells more and more tickets every year, mm -hmm. is that it's filling a space for which there is a public yes. appetite. Well, there's a huge hunger for it. There's a huge yes. hunger for it, and that, and, and that hunger is not being yes. satisfied by yes. the business that I work in somehow. There's a mismatch there, James. Yeah, but I, th I think it's wrong-headed for us to, if I may say so, for us to, to think that we're ever going to uh, reshape the, the, the media into a malign, uh, into benevolent presence. The, the, the attendance here today has been, I think, run principally through the web. But a great number of you bought tickets because of the, uh, the web, and it's in that area now. It's in the area of blogging and the, the use of the web for individual opinion, and I think the future is going to lie. Everyone is now fascinated with the fact that Farsi is, what is it, the 30th or 40th language in the world, but in fact, it accounts for about 25% of all the world's online blogging. Why? Because Iran is principally a young person's country. And that, that is why it's important for us to say to young people, not just, here's your certificate for science or, or history, but have courage, communicate, and by the way, you're proprietor of the most important technology ever. It's called the English language. And online, you can use it to reach anyone. I think somewhere in that is the future. Now, we're supposed to be winding up about now, but this is uh, so interesting. Tim, can I overrun for 10 minutes or so? Thank you. Uh, we've got a couple, let me, uh, there's a couple of questions I'd like to take together. Is Bill Muncie here? Yes. Have you got the microphone? Yeah. Afternoon, panel. Um, I'd like to ask, will the way Scotland votes in May significantly influence the, the chances of a second enlightenment? Next year, in May? In May next year. Okay. <laughs> Professor Keith Bickerman. Can you? Yes. Yes. <clears throat> I think that many of the points I wanted to make have already been made by the panel speakers, but I'd like to introduce a new word, which is endarkenment. <laughs> and um, <laughs> scientists are deeply concerned about the global retreat of environment values over the last uh, decade. And as we've heard, uh, this endarkenment, uh, they can be attribute to resurgent fundamentalist religion backed up by imposed political correctness and uh, postmodern relativism, as was pointed out by Professor Devine. But is this endarkenment as much the fault of uncompromising scientists 
who rubbish religion and will not admit that our society's current spiritual, moral and cultural ills are in large measure the result of their arrogance. Is this endarkenment? I'll just, I'll just, let me just sum up. Is this endarkenment as much the fault of uncompromising scientists who rubbish religion and will not admit that our society's current spiritual, moral and cultural ills are in large measure the result of their arrogance? Well, we have to have our token scientist on this. <laughs> well, thank you for that question. I, I think in part... The the, the perception of arrogance on the part of scientists and science, whatever that is. And we shouldn't forget, of course, that science is actually about ordinary people trying to understand the nature which they live in and their relationship to it, which actually means all of us. And my view is that somehow we've got to rediscover science again as a common pursuit and not simply a Mandarin exercise, which involves a few of us. Um, those of us that are scientists believe that science is about uncertainty. The popular perception, I think, is that it's about certainty. It's a total mismatch between the two. Some of our less, uh, our less sophisticated members, no doubt, they too believe that it's about certainty. And one often sees that, one often sees that when one asks a question which, 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 contain, a question, which contain an issue of values. Uh, my view is that if, if I speak about uh, the way in which nature works, then if you were particularly kind, you might listen to me with some respect. But if I then move on to the question of how should I use that knowledge, that's no longer for me. I'm then just an ordinary citizen, as we all are. Those are questions of values, about how we, how we do things. And I think it's the, the shading of that interface which has led to this perception of arrogance on the part of science. I, mean, I, I recently published a, a wee paper which I've argued that actually science has been a tremendous force for humility over the ages. If one thinks of it, a few hundred years ago, Copernicus showed that we were not in the center of the universe. We are merely some outlying uh, planet on the edge of an insignificant star on the farther edge of the galaxy. Um, Darwin uh, showed that uh, uh, we, along, we were not the pinnacle of evolution, but simply the outcome of a series of random events. And our own James Hutton, who coined this lovely phrase of an Earth Without, uh, w without vestige of a beginning, that prospect of an end, that we actually came rather late in the day. And Mark Twain, in a rather s a, a, a lovely bit of put-down, uh, wrote that who could possibly doubt that the millimeter of paint on the top of the Eiffel Tower was what the Eiffel Tower was built for? Joyce. <laughs> well, I think it's undoubtedly true that in the way our culture works, um, science has attracted or has tended to attract um, a, a kind of a, a minority probably of scientists who are in science precisely because they think it is purely rational and they'd rather not deal with all that other stuff, kind of faith and emotion and so on. I once heard a very um, senior scientist on Desert Island Discs of all radio programs in total denial that there could be any psychological element uh, about the strand of depression that ran through his whole family. He wished to believe and did believe that this was entirely a chemical thing and some doctor somewhere had told him it was entirely a chemical thing. And even Sue Lawley, you know, with, uh, who, who doesn't delve too deep usually, was audibly kind of irritated by his absolute refusal to consider the possible emotional dimensions of that. And I thought that was quite interesting because it plays up to a stereotype in our culture of what a scientist is like. And undoubtedly, that stereotype will attract some people who have that emotional 
kind of formation. And so there can be a kind of element of emotional illiteracy, if you like, in the way the scientific community conducts itself. And you see people taking very entrenched positions and arguing them for reasons which are quite clearly to do with status and prestige as much as to do with, um, to do with the, 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 the real arguments behind the thing. But you could say that of any academic specialism. What I've learned certainly in the kind of processes of civic debate that I've been involved in over the last 15 years is that you cannot counter religious fundamentalism in its genuine endarkenment forms, intolerant, violent, misogynist, all the other characteristics that really, um, really um, um, profound religious fundamentalism tends to have. You cannot fight that with atheism. You can only fight it with more enlightened forms of spiritual life because human beings do need a spiritual life, in my opinion. And I think that unless you have a, 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 the kind of spiritual life that Tom's been talking about um, in, in, in some of the great thinkers of the Enlightenment, which can accommodate both an element of faith and wonder and unknowing and an element of real rational rigor in investigating the world and trying to improve the world, then you cannot actually give a satisfactory answer to those who are attracted towards fundamentalism. So this is where we really have something to look to in the past of the Scottish Enlightenment and really have something to develop under the much more sort of multinational and global and cosmopolitan conditions of our own world um, in pursuing that argument. But you don't fight fundamentalist faith with fundamentalist atheism. And you can draw a... a... <laughs> And you can draw a line from, from that position back to the, the Kirk ministers who were part of the, uh, yes. the Enlightenment movement in, in, in Tom's period. Uh, Joyce, before you finish, can I just ask you to address the other question, the, oh. the elections next May as well. Oh, my God. Um, um, the election next May. I, I, I'm actually kind of, kind of almost reluctant to answer that question. I, I really don't know is the answer. What will be most conducive to a kind of new Enlightenment in Scotland is some sense that we have arrived at a resting place that most Scots can be happy with. In 1997 to 99, it looked as though, and, and, and perhaps for longer than that, it looked as though devolution might be that resting place. Now, because of the unpopularity of the UK government and the sense of breach of faith that James has talked about, it seems that we're moving again towards a time when independence might be um, a more live topic in Scottish politics. I honestly wish that we could reach some kind of resolution that perhaps 80, 90% of the Scottish population would be happy with, because I think, um, in a sense, this debate is an exhausting one, and the kind of mm. fundamentalist positions, if you like, that tend to exist on either side of it are not much use for encouraging a climate of enlightenment. So what I hope for is enlightened politicians in power at Holyrood who are interested in, uh, yes, exactly, bitter laughter, <laughs> who are interested in pursuing this debate, and I can't honestly say that I see one party as being much better than the other in that respect. James, people get the politicians, populations well, uh, get the politicians they deserve, don't they? Either we're going to educate the politicians of the future right here or we're not. If, if we're going to, to educate youngsters to be interested in the Commonwealth of Scotland and go to, go to um, Holyrood and um, act with good faith and, and honour, then it will all start at preschool, it will start in the parents' knee and it will end up, uh, end up here. Do I think it will make any difference uh, next month? I, I persist in thinking that... Um, uh, we've got a duty to vote, we should vote and we should, we should do it in good faith but the, the, at the back of everything is, is this business of our separation of us and them what, what we are expecting from politicians and what they think we expect is delivery, you know we are here to vote they are here to deliver let me tell you something, 
The, the reason that, that those of us who were behind UNESCO City of Literature were behind it was one sentence. We wanted to embarrass ourselves and you into taking better stewardship of Edinburgh's literary heritage. We, in politics, we've completely lost the notion of personal responsibility. We continually point and laugh. In part, I've been doing that. But unless, unless we can bridge this and bring good faith back in mm -hmm. and take more personal responsibility, then we're going to get this absolutely insane practice in politics of saying, we will not only prescribe this policy, but we will deliver it. And, and this business of government becoming manager and us becoming the managed, mm -hmm. which is absolutely crazy. I think if, if we're thinking about endarkament, I just want to pick, pick up Joy, Joyce's point about not fighting it with atheism. That's right, but I persist in saying again that um, respect for human life ought to be at the base of everything. And I think that instead of this ramshackle of laws that we've introduced to deal with terrorism, we should go back and think about a constitution and a bill of rights that will fit our contemporary society and it ought to be based on human values. I want to give the last word now because we really must wrap up to Professor Devine. Uh, no, I think everything's been said, plus I'm intellectually exhausted. <laughs> Principal Professor Vicky Bruce to con conclude uh, the event for us. Well, it's um, my great pleasure to um, thank a number of people uh, on behalf of the university and particularly the College of Humanities and Social Science. Um, firstly, I'd like to thank all of those who have contributed so much to the discussion here. I'd like to thank Alan Little for crafting a really excellent debate. Sincere th <laughs> Sincere thanks to our panelists, Jeffrey, Joyce, and James. They've been stimulated by our lecture, but they've added to it with passion, intelligence, and eloquence. Thank you all very much. And, and finally, of course, I want on all our behalves to thank Professor Tom Devine for his lecture. Everyone here will have learned more about the past in a way that will influence how we think about the present and plan our futures. Professor Devine's thesis was that the Enlightenment arose from a combination of three factors. The politics of the time, which can have a capacity to inhibit or facilitate free thinking. Wider societal factors, Oppression and injustice can fuel thinking about better possible futures. And universities, as places to educate, to nurture talent, to encourage debate, and to push against disciplinary boundaries in all senses of the word. And to reach out to communities and to the wider world. I want to thank Tom for his brilliant presentation as one of our topmost public intellectuals. Thank you very much. <laughs>